You are listening to episode 36 of the Unnecessary Nonsense Podcast, the podcast to our qualified idiots with a streamlined intro because it's 2020 and we're not doing the whole spiel right now. I'm Carlos Alcazar and not with me is Dave Turnbull, although we're going to give him a little bit of a pass because it's not his fault. We actually did already record this podcast a well over an hour and there may be some clips of it interspersed in the course of this podcast here, but I'm Carlos and we're going to talk about a little bit about the NFL playoffs specifically. And uh, there is a little bit of a spiel that we'll include about the about the college football championship, which I think I'll be able to insert here. But part of the reason why I threw out a lot of the conversation, even though it was a good conversation, was number one, some of the playoff games have already happened and some of them are happening right now. And also our entire prediction and playoff bracket has completely been thrown asunder. Uh, partially not so surprisingly and partially surprisingly. Long story short, the not so surprising, although still a bit of a surprise because you don't count it until it actually happens, the New England Patriots were beaten by the Tennessee Titans. And I'm going to talk about that for a little bit in a minute. But the second one that was a lot more shocking was the New Orleans Saints losing to the Minnesota Vikings, which completely threw out everything that I thought that was good, that we were going to be talking about and also the entire concept and comparison. And it brings up a whole new conversation about how we have to look at this New Orleans Saints team in context. The last three years have really been damaging, I would say, to the legacy of Drew Brees and Sean Payton. They still did get that Super Bowl, but in the pantheon and kind of the higher level of looking at them in terms of uh, NFL history, you really have to wonder. Yes, there's been some bad luck involved, and I'll talk about more about that in a couple of minutes here, but at the same time, luck can only take you so far. It's being consistently in a position where a bad break can ruin you. That in itself is damning to me. And that's just my opinion, and that's the way I look at it. Because I'm not on the field actually doing it, although a lot of fans kind of trying to transplant themselves into that position, I don't have any stake in the outcome, really, in terms of personal ability to affect it. But at the same time, I have to look at the team that I cheer for, whoever that happens to be, and I have to consider that whenever you're in a position where one bad break or one thing or one single play can ruin you, then you shouldn't have allowed yourself to be in that position in the first place, and then you wouldn't have this problem. With all that said, welcome to 2020, and we're here in the NFL playoffs once again, and we're going to have a lot of fun in terms of, I think, the way the next couple of weeks are going to play out, but we're going to talk a little bit about a couple of these games upcoming and also how the rest of the bracket looks and it's going to play out. So a little bit more on that. This is going to be broken up into a couple of little segments, so you will notice that in the way this this podcast is being edited. This is a little part one preamble to get you started. Now let's talk a little bit more about some of the NFL playoffs. So first, on to New England, which was probably, as I said, not a super surprising outcome, but it was surprising in the way that it happened. At the end of the day, really, what it came down to for the Patriots is that we were all looking at, can they generate enough offense to win this type of game? And the truth is, they came as advertised. They really didn't have much going on in offense. They weren't able to generate much. But Tennessee surprised me, not in the sense that they went to Derrick Henry with a heavy dose of Derrick Henry, which is which was the correct move. Coming into it, one of the first thoughts that I had was, well, if Tennessee's key to victory is don't rely on Tannehill. Use him if you need him when the moment comes. But at the same time, if you can hit with a heavy dose of Derrick Henry, that would be, to me, the path to victory. And on the whole, that kind of was the path to victory because they managed to control the clock and do a lot of the things that you would want to do. A lot of that game plan would be almost exactly what I would want to see. But I even saw a little bit, and um, I caught it in real time the first time a little bit. But I usually watch some of these games without commentary because I find, to be honest, I find a lot of the commentary teams distracting and, and more annoying than actually helpful. But as far as this was concerned, it was worth a rewatch where someone else did a clip of it and kind of emphasized the certain components of it. It was um, where they were about five minutes left in the game, almost six minutes left in the game, and Tennessee had the ball and they were going to punt it away. But at the same time, they intentionally took a, a penalty. 
and then set themselves up to take another penalty. And what they were doing actually is they were running off the clock each time. So even though they were taking a penalty, the clock was starting up again and it was running down and Bill Belichick was losing his mind. And what kind of helped them with that is that New England actually did get a penalty in between, which prevented them, which uh, allowed them to run the clock past the five minute mark. Uh, Beyond that point, now this this was a quirk of the rules that I was not aware of, mind you. I don't study the NFL rule book that closely, but it was very funny to me that Mike Vrabel, uh, as kind of an inadvertent student of the Patriot way, did out-Patriot the Patriots by understanding the rule book enough to know just how far he could push that, because that's within the rules. You can use it at that time to your advantage and intentionally take a couple of penalties in order to maximize how much time you were able to run off the clock. So you went from over six minutes left in the clock, game clock, to under to under five minutes which at that point in time when you're up by one point is pretty much the best thing you can do. Anything that helps you run the clock down, that's the anti-Andy Reid. That's beautiful clock management. Even though they weren't able to score any more points really to kind of put the game away themselves, they were able to position themselves in a way to make it as difficult as possible for New England. And in the end, uh, the score flattered Tennessee a little bit because it was a one-point game for the majority of the the second half. And it really came down to, uh, you know, it was a pick six by Tom Brady, which basically ended the thing. And that was really about the best way it could have uh, it could have ended for Tennessee to give them that little bit of cushion right at the end to allow them to to close it out and and claim the victory. At the end of the day, it was an upset, definitely, because we all give uh, New England the benefit of the doubt until they were officially eliminated. But at the same time, it was it was really interesting to see a team that very clearly understood how to exploit the rules perfectly, and they demonstrated that, and it was really impressive. And that's really the takeaway that I have from that New England game where Mike Vrabel took, even though he was never a coach in New England, as a player and as someone who saw the preparation and the and the understanding that a Bill Belichick had, he clearly learned the right lessons. So congratulations to Tennessee on advancing. A, a really impressive performance. Now that leaves us with the, the storylines going into the offseason. Tom Brady, for the first time, is really a, a free agent. Does he come back to New England? Does he retire? Does he go somewhere else to try to make it go? I'd really like to see these two try and try and do it in their own place. Whether it's Bill Belichick in New England, Tom Brady in New England, Bill Belichick somewhere else, or some combination therein, I would like to see these two try to work their talents in two different spots. But neither one of them is getting any younger, so it really comes down to where where they can go, that they will have enough tools at their disposal to be able to make something happen, because a full-fledged rebuild I don't think is going to work for either one of them. One other thing, though, and you know, I'll be perfectly blunt, I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest Patriot fan in the world, and by that I say I'm a Patriot skeptic. Even when they're winning, I really wasn't that impressed. And it was one of those things where like, I can accept that they won, I can even accept that they cheat, but at the same time, I can't then give them the full credit. It's one of those things, like, if you get away with it, you get away with it. I'll, I can accept that. I can't, I'd be uh, disingenuous and I'd be a hypocrite if I said, at the end of the day, I'd be fine with my team doing whatever it took to win. I'm cool with that. But at the same time, I'm not going to value it at the same level that somebody that's just flat out that much better than you, as opposed to a team that executes perfectly, that makes all the right moves, that understands the rules better than everybody else, and basically waits for you to make a mistake. You respect it, but at the same time, you understand that, you know what, talent-wise, you weren't the better team, but you were the smarter team, so we'll give it to you. And in this case, Tennessee, I don't know if Tennessee was really the better team, um, top to bottom, but I will say on that day, they were the smarter team. So congratulations to them on that. Now from there, we move on to the other kind of, to the much more surprising outcome. In New Orleans, the New Orleans Saints hosted the Minnesota Vikings and Kirk Cousins, and they lost to Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings 
And uh, allegedly, because it, Kirk Cousins, I he had his moment, but I don't know if he uh, if he really had as much to do with it as much as New Orleans really stepping on their foot, shooting themselves in the foot, nailing themselves to the ground with their by their foot, and doing all kinds of things that they could do to make this uh, to make this go. Long story short, for me, the big takeaway from this game was. I don't understand what New Orleans game plan was. At the end of the day, Minnesota came out fighting and they came out doing what they needed to do. And I was impressed from that perspective. But at the same time, I never thought until basically the end that Minnesota really had this game locked up. Because once they got, you know, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but once they got to overtime and they got to the two yard line right at the right there, it was like it would have taken a monumental choke job to not find a way to score points, let alone realistically, they needed to score that touchdown. They couldn't allow the Saints to have another crack at this because they had already given them 500 cracks at it in the entire second half. Now, long story short, because I don't want to dwell on this part too much, the the last play, which, you know, a lot of people will look at and say, you know, that was offensive pass interference. And I can accept, I can accept that. And there'll be articles written about it and a lot of discussion about it. But here's the thing. I don't care. I think it was offensive pass interference. I'll say that right now, right out of the block. I also think that's irrelevant. I think the fact is you were in position where you allowed the Minnesota Vikings to be in a position where they can beat you on a play like that. It's the same thing as it was the same thing as last year with the, you know, with the, with the no call on the pass interference. I can't feel bad for you, New Orleans Saints fans, if your team consistently leaves themselves in this. The truth is, if New Orleans had blown them out by 40 and they were up 40 to nothing in the fourth quarter, then it doesn't matter what Minnesota does. They can have 500 pass interference calls go their way. The referees could intentionally go and just penalize the Saints for having a dumb nickname. You know, the, the whole who dat thing. I, I could spend hours talking about this. I never understood it. I think it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in the world. And if you look at the franchise's history, the question, who that going to beat them Saints? The answer is everyone. Historically, everyone in the NFL, a JV team, a high school team, uh, a random team I could cobble together from the streets from a couple of kids who maybe saw football for the first time in their lives, they can beat them Saints. The modern iteration of it, those Saints play a lot better, but right now that's only been good enough for one Super Bowl run that required, frankly, about 15 horseshoes up you know, Drew Brees and Sean Payton's butts. It required all that. And even then, it barely happened. It's one of those things where, and even in this, as I said, in the Super Bowl, it required, you know, a trick play. Like, I can't give you that much credit. At the same time, full value, you still have the Super Bowl. So fine, you've got it. But then the last three years, they, I made the comparison in the original version of this podcast when we recorded it earlier. I said that the New Orleans Saints were moving dangerously close into you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers territory. You're looking at the talent and you're saying to yourself, there's enough talent here to win. They should win. This year, they were one of the most complete teams in the NFC. And yet they're going to be watching the rest of the playoffs on television because again, they were able, they came up small. They were at home in their dome with Kirk Cousins, who was trying his best to lose that football game, who was doing his best to justify why everyone questioned if he was really going to be the guy. He was never the guy in Washington. They were not confident enough. They kept franchise tagging him for a reason. And then finally, Minnesota went and got him. And then the question is, was he really better than Case Keenum? Talent-wise, his ceiling is better, but he would make these dumb mistakes and he would find the, the time. His record in you know late evening and afternoon games is, is atrocious. His record on Monday Night Football is atrocious. And then in this game, the entire second half, when you watch Minnesota go out there, they were barely advancing the football. Even when they're in a position where they're winning by 10 points comfortably, rather than put your foot on the on the Saints' throat and finish them off, they basically just allowed the Saints to chip away, chip away, chip away, and come back to tie it, to send it to overtime. 
and the Saints for their for their job in that entire second half, the Minnesota Vikings and specifically Kirk Cousins did everything in his power to hand the New Orleans Saints the game. They were trying to say, "We will give you as many opportunities as you guys need. Come and just take this game, have it, enjoy it." And here we are again. And the end result of all of this really comes down to, and you know, you don't want to do small sample sizes because it's not fair, but at the same time, you have to look at it and you have to be realistic about it for all of Drew Brees' records, for all of his accomplishments, because he is, you know, he's the all-time passing leader. He's the all-time touchdown leader in regular season. All of these records are in his possession. But at the end of the day, we keep having to look back. If the playoffs matter, and I, I leave it to I leave it to everyone else to decide for themselves if the playoffs matter or not. But if the playoffs matter, he's a 500 quarterback in the playoffs for his entire career. And I cheer for the Packers, so you can go come and th- you can come and take shots at Aaron Rodgers at the same time. And the thing is, you'd be correct. He's barely over 500. And the truth is, I think he's going to lose, uh, you know, in, in this next round. The buy was buying the Packers some more time, but that'll be a conversation for later. But the result, but the end result of it, though, is that when we look at Drew Brees' you know, records, we look great in the regular season, able to build up all these statistics, never won an MVP, even if you want to argue that he had a chance to win an MVP, it, it was borderline because people looked at it and go, yeah, you're getting these stats, but so what? What's it leading to? It's kind of the same reason that I take shots at Mike Trout. He's seen as this consensus number one player, but I'm like, so what? What has it led to? Always oh, got the the advanced metrics. It's like, oh, he's got this high war. And like, and I promise I'll bring it back to football here in a second. But my point is I'm like, okay, great. So that means he took a crummy team and made them marginally less crummy. Well, in New Orleans, it's not like that. They took a good team and they are a great regular season team. But even then, they've missed the playoffs a number of times with Drew Brees healthy. And this year, this team was good because Drew Brees went down with a thumb injury for a couple of weeks and Teddy Bridgewater came in and they didn't lose a game. I'm not saying they didn't need Drew Brees because Drew Brees did make them better than Teddy Bridgewater. But my point is the team was still good. You know, if a lot of other teams, if their starting quarterback goes down, they go in the tank, they lose every game. And the New Orleans Saints weren't that kind of team. They were a team that was built to be able to do almost everything you'd want them to do. And yet, here we are again talking about the New Orleans Saints coming up short. You can say, well, last year it was the referees, you know, they had the no call. Again, I'm back to one play. One play did you in because you didn't put yourself in a position to be ahead by more than one score. You needed to be in a position where you were winning this game. If you're winning this game comfortably, then this one non-call, irrelevant. The year before, the Minneapolis Miracle, again, you're within one possession where you can have one play, one completely broken coverage where you screwed up, and here you are looking at looking up at the ceiling going, why? And this is what always seems to happen with New Orleans. The last three years, I would say they were pro- legitimately, I could make the argument that the last three years, the New Orleans Saints should probably have been in the Super Bowl two, if not three of those years. And the fact that they are not, the fact that they went out in the first round here, and the fact that they have not gotten there, and the fact that they've missed playoff, the, missed playoff years when they should have probably gotten to playoffs, where they've had great offenses, where they've done all that, you can argue they weren't a complete team, but there are other teams that are not complete. They got to the playoffs, at least got there. And the Saints team just doesn't seem, there's something missing. There's, I don't know what it is, because they should, in theory, have the right quarterback. They should, in theory, have the right coaching. And they have offensive weapons. Michael Thomas is a great player. It's one of those things you just look at it and it's perplexing because it always seems to be something with the Saints. They find some way to screw it up when they shouldn't. And that's why I made that comparison to them between the Dodgers. You keep looking at them on paper. You should have won something during this, during this time period because that Super Bowl in 2009, to me, was a fluke. 
I really don't value it as highly as other Super Bowl victories by other teams. But at the end of the day, it still counts. And fortunately for those two, meaning Sean Payton and Drew Brees, fortunately it does count. Otherwise, it would really knock him down a peg and a half. It's like he, he Otherwise, he'd be this era's Dan Marino, where you just go like, great, but what did it mean? What what did it lead to? And the answer was nothing. And it was always disappointment, even though the numbers were great, even though you'd look up and these, these stats would be off the charts. And then you'd sit there and go like, how? If Drew Brees comes back next year, which I have no reason to believe he wouldn't, he will cross 80,000 passing yards, which is an incredible accomplishment. And he will, ta- he will rack up more touchdowns. He'll come dangerously close to, I think, 600 career touchdowns. Um, and, you know, the beat goes on. It just keeps going for him. But at the same time, how many more shots are they going to have at it? And I, the answer is, I don't really think that many. But uh, I wanted to take some couple, a little bit of time to talk about it because there's a, lot of to- there's a lot of topics to me that come off of this game. This game just forwards a narrative where it's like, well, what is it going to take? What does Drew Brees and the New Orleans Saints need to get over the hump and actually win, win a playoff game? Especially against a team that really had no business winning that game. And now Minnesota will get to advance and they will probably be, uh, you know, they're getting, they're getting fed to the San Francisco 49ers, which is going to be very interesting. I'd favor the 49ers, obviously. I wouldn't have picked this matchup going into it, but yet here we are. And uh, spoiler, my original pick when we were trying to do our little bracket was I had the Saints going to the Super Bowl. I had them losing to the AFC opposition, but I had them getting to the Super Bowl, and obviously they're nowhere near that. So that's the Saints game, at least from my perspective. And I think we'll have more an opportunity to talk about that a little bit next week because there's plenty to chew on. And I think having a couple of days to think about it will be will make things infinitely more interesting. Now, before I get out of this uh, first week of playoff games, I do I would be remiss if I didn't at least take a moment to talk about the uh, the Buffalo Bills Houston Texans game, and that one also went to overtime. And um, it is such a shame to me because when I look at it, and I'm not going to spend nearly as much time talking about it as I did the New Orleans game because I think there's a lot more to chew on here for this. Uh, for the New Orleans game, there was a lot more to chew on than this one. I think what it really came down to was Houston is still Deshaun Watson is a great quarterback. That team is resilient. They have a lot going for them. Bill O'Brien really isn't a great coach. I think it really came down to they were able to get enough. Out of J.J. Watt, they were able to get enough out of Deshaun Watson, and they were able to capitalize on a Buffalo Bills team, which really looked very good for a good chunk of that game, and they were able to do enough. But the inexperience of Josh Allen came to the forefront. You had that play, I think, with a minute left where he decided just to lateral it to no one, which... Uh, solicited chuckles for me because even the announcers who usually err on the side of um, conservatism, they try not to give to a player too much flack. Even they were perplexed. They're like, who's he throwing it to? Why would he be doing that with a minute left? And the answer was nobody knows. Um, That's just an inexperience. I think that's youth playing into it, but it's also Josh Allen kind of getting uh, overly amped up in the moment and making some weird decisions that uh, hurt his football team. And at the same time, he needs to learn how to make that deep throw because he can run. He's athletic. He can take off with the ball. And he makes a couple of throws here and there. But it's one of those things where if they had a different quarterback, and um, during the original iteration when we, uh, Dave and I were talking about it, I, I had a little bit of fun because I was because I was making some, uh, some comparisons that were a little bit hurtful, but also, to be blunt, I think accurate. I was saying that good Andy Dalton, like Andy Dalton when he's playing efficiently, because Andy Dalton is not a great quarterback, but he's a he's a serviceable quarterback, especially when the team isn't terrible. But efficient Andy Dalton, where he's doing what he needs to do and just throwing the football away when it needed to be thrown away and throwing it downfield when it needed to be thrown downfield. Here's the thing. If Andy Dalton had been on that Buffalo Bills team, I think they would have won that game because Houston was dead to rights. I think Buffalo had them, but it was a case of 
with Josh Allen in there, uh, the Buffalo Bills offense was basically, uh, you know, a team that had a couple of haymakers. They threw a couple. They connected with the Houston Texans. Houston Texans staggered, but much like um, much like that famous play now, which I th- I hope gets replayed a lot because it was a really good play. Much like the play that where Deshaun Watson was dead to rights, two Buffalo Bills, you know, converged on him, and one hit him high and one hit him low, and he still managed to spin out of it and complete the play. That, in a nutshell, was the game with Buffalo Bills against the Houston Texans. They hit. Houston with their best shot, they managed to stagger them. They held them down for a couple of minutes for a little bit of time. But then when it came down to it, Houston still had just enough firepower to be able to come back and force overtime and then win that game. But at the same time, um, I don't know what Houston's prospects would be going beyond this. Uh, I think they had the right opponent in in Buffalo where they were able to get past this round. And but Buffalo had every opportunity to win that game. And if they had played the game plan a little differently, if they had been able to play with a little bit more poise, and it was ironic because um even though I don't like to listen to the commentary, I did hear a little bit of um, of Booger talking about Josh uh, Allen's poise. Um, well, if he actually had a little bit more poise, they would have won that game because he 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 got exposed for having a little bit of uh, you know rookie type jitters. And unfortunately for Buffalo, it was at the wrong time because they really did have a chance to have their first playoff win since 1995. And now that's going to drag on into next year. But that team was solid at different times. They didn't beat a ton of great teams, but they at least were competitive against a bunch of teams. And 10 and 5, um, well, I would say 10 and 6, was nothing to sneeze at. And it was a good season overall for the Buffalo Bills. It's a lot more optimistic, I would say, than they've been the last couple of years. But this was an opportunity. I really did think they could have the opportunity to beat Houston. They just didn't have that knockout punch available to them. So that's the Buffalo Bills game in a nutshell. Now, with all that said, as we're currently in the fourth quarter as I'm recording this of the Seattle-Philadelphia game. Seattle is currently up 17-9. to So right now it looks like they may, although, you know, Philadelphia does have the football. Uh, Josh McCown has been in the game. So we'll see if Philadelphia can come back. But assuming Seattle wins, that'll be the matchup that uh, the Green Bay Packers will be looking into, which as a Packer fan, I'm not looking forward to. I don't have good memories of uh, playing Seattle in the playoffs. Nothing good comes of this. But it was to be expected because it was going to be the winner of this game. I'm secretly hoping that they would get Philadelphia because I prefer that matchup. But we'll talk more about the you know the subsequent uh, playoff matchups coming up in the next round here a little bit more later on this week into next week. But in the meantime, I'm going to take us over to a little discussion that Dave and myself had regarding the college football final. When I mentioned earlier, we did have a little bit of a chat about it for a couple minutes, and we also talked a little bit about uh, Tua and the potential decision that he's going to be making on Monday about whether or not he's going to go to the NFL. Not not huge, big analysis on the, on the college football final, but there was a little bit to it. One other thing I'll mention, though, before I head over to that, is that I did have a little bit of uncertainty because, unfortunately, I didn't have my notes in front of me. Um, Trevor Lawrence did play in last year's college football final. He was the MVP on the winning Clemson team, so he so he has won a national championship. And Tua also has a national championship as far as playing with uh, with Alabama and um, being in, I believe it was the 2017 final. So both both guys are you know national championship winners. So as far as you know, from Tua's perspective, potentially going to the NFL for me, there's nothing left for improving college, and the only thing that can happen is bad things if he gets himself hurt again. That's kind of the point that I was trying to make during the conversation with Dave. And from Trevor Lawrence's standpoint, well, he certainly is welcome to come back for another season because right now he's playing very well. He has a chance to win a national championship this year. So if he becomes a two-time national championship, that's another feather in his cap. And if he goes to play college football again next year, he would still be the consensus number one pick for me with a 
possibility of winning three national championships. Now, again, I'd love to research and check it out, but I don't know if anybody's actually won three national championships as a quarterback. That'd be kind of an interesting thing to look up. Even being, even winning two it would put you, I think, in rarefied air because it's very impressive. It means a certain amount of consistency from that Clemson program. So good on them. But here's the conversation that Dave and I had as far as the national championship coming up in a couple of weeks here. Also, uh, a little bit about the Tua conversation. Personally, I think this is the best matchup that could have happened mm-hmm. um, based on the, the four playoff teams. Um, and I do, I do like the new format mm-hmm. in terms of how they pick them and whatever. Uh, in terms of which teams make the playoffs. So I like that. But I think here, LSU is a juggernaut that is not going to be stopped. Uh, You know, their offense is just, Joe Burrow is just leading that offense. Like, it's an NFL offense, uh, you know, playing against college teams. And their defense is pretty good, too. I mean, Clemson's going to be a good team. I don't expect LSU to run away with it by any stretch of the imagination. But I do expect LSU to win relatively comfortably. So the thing is, there is a strong case to be made for that. The one thing I will say is that uh, is Clemson as defending champion is a strong defending champion. I do think we do have the two best teams to make an interesting matchup. I also I also think that I understand the rationale behind it, but I almost feel bad that we've got such a long gap between the semifinals and the final here, waiting until the 13th. So we've got it. A, it's a week Monday before we actually get the game. Uh, that long gap does take a little bit of the momentum out of this thing. Although you're not you're you're probably not going to want to compete with uh, obviously the NFL this weekend. Like this weekend, it's uh, it's an NFL weekend, especially with all the wild card games and all the uh, storylines going into that. The most interesting, I think, subplot of this is really Joe Burrow is the likely number one, you know, rated a number one drafted quarterback coming up in this next draft class against like Trevor Lawrence, who might be next year's number one uh, draft overall draft pick or at least a top quarterback pick. Either way, you want to look at it. Um, as far as the game is concerned, LSU's offense should be enough to get the job done, but it really comes down to, like, Clemson's a good team, and they're well-coached, and, they, uh, and they've done very well to get to this point. And in the semifinal game, they really played a well-executed game where not everything went right, but they managed to, but they managed to find enough to get the job done. And it does help that they've already been there, whereas LSU hasn't been in this position. So I think that does help Clemson a lot. I think it's going to be fairly close just because I don't think either one of these teams is constructed in such a way where they should run away from the other one. Clemson is too experienced to allow that to happen from their perspective. And LSU has plenty of offense, but they're also they're also new to this. They haven't been in this position in a little while, whereas Clemson has been in this position a couple of times the last couple of years. So it's, this isn't really new for them. Yeah, they're, they're a very battle-tested football team. Yeah, and the coaching staff knows exactly what to do in this situation, how to get the players prepared, and that's huge. Because in college football, you get so much turnover in players that if you have a coaching staff that does know how to prepare the players, they can they can go back and say, look, we've been in this national championship game already a couple of times the last couple of years. We know what to do. We know how to get prepared, and we've won this thing. We won this thing last year. So even the freshmen and the newer players can, say, can look back and say, no, we already know how to win this, so just do what we say. And the players have no reason not to follow that when the, when the staff is battle-tested to that degree. So that is interesting. And like I said, this is going to be very um, – it's not directly related to this uh, to the college you know, football final, the national championship game, but kind of an offshoot of this and something that came up a lot in this week's kind of talking head shows that I thought was interesting. But it's a good playoff of this. Talking a lot about Tua and looking in, projecting into next season. Because like I think Trevor Lawrence is kind of the front runner to potentially be the number one guy. And the question becomes if Tua is going to declare himself for the NFL draft this year or go back to play another season. 
Uh, do you have any thoughts about that, about kind of the pros and cons of one versus the other? I have a very strong opinion on this, but... Uh, I, I, well, I, th- I think that's an interesting thought, but if I'm Tua, you go this year. But, and and there is there is no... Like, why would you go back? Um, has he... Did, they haven't won a national championship with him, correct? Um, I think... No, I don't think they did, but I think... Well, actually, hold on. Because I'm trying At to least think. not with him as a starter, is what I mean. Yeah, because I think Tua was on one of the Alabama national championship teams. So I don't know if he was the starter, but he contributed, I think, to one of those teams because I think he did play a little bit. Uh, the year okay, they did well, if, if that's the case, then, I mean, you have that. Yeah. Why, like, why wouldn't you go now? Yeah, There's well, the, no reason the, not to. The whole the whole argument was that uh, was that you'd put together a little bit more game tape to kind of help you. The thought process being that with the injury and with Joe Burrow absolutely lighting it up, he wouldn't be the top draft pick. And then some teams may be may shy away from him because of his injury history. But my counter to that, which is, which I think is true, yeah. But at the same time, the counter to that is you go back and play more college and you get injured again, and you've pretty much put the nail in that coffin. You've basically yeah, sealed it. Well, but here's the other thing. I mean, I, I get that if you're a, being drafted as a rookie quarterback, that you'd you know want to be a starter, right? I mean, I think every quarterback that gets drafted would like to be a starter someday. But I mean, Joe Burrow's going to Cincinnati. Nobody wants to go to Cincinnati. Nobody, Carlos. Nobody. Not even you. What do you mean, not even me? My my <laughs> my well known affinity for Cincinnati, like. No, you're well, well on affinity for all things Ohio. My double, my WKRP fandom showing through. Like, what do you, what do you got here? No, um, we we just know how much you love Cleveland and you know everything yeah, related to Cleveland. Yeah, yeah me, me and LeBron. Um, so the thing is, the 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 reason why it's interesting is because the the argument I think can be made as far as trying to put on some more positive game tape, trying to show some more winning, and trying to move up your draft stock. But I think, like I said given that Trevor Lawrence is in a position here to potentially win another national championship or to be in another national championship, I don't remember if he if he was the starter last year. But regardless, the point is that almost no matter what he does, if he has a good showing in this championship game to go along with winning, being on the championship team last year, to go along with you know potentially lighting it up next season, Trevor Lawrence is probably going to be your top draft pick anyway. So Tua would be in almost the same situation next year, plus adding in the risk factors of potentially getting hurt another time and basically just wrecking himself, getting himself completely out of the first round. Being a first-round pick, I'd almost I'd almost prefer going into the draft this year and maybe if you slide down a little bit, well, number one, you'll be on a better team. That, that, that in itself is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And then the second thing is it allows you to rehab and work through and do everything, but while getting still getting paid. Being a first-round quarterback still pays pretty well. And it's better, and it's better than the amount you're going to get paid at Alabama, which is allegedly zero. Yeah, well, exactly. I think I think he's an idiot if he goes back to college. Yeah. Personally, it's, and I think anybody who thinks it's a good idea for him to go back to college is also an idiot. Yeah. Well, that that's been the fun part for me about that conversation is that some try to make that pitch, and it's like the risk factors are too high, and almost every. Please tell me it wasn't Kellerman. No, I think I think I think I think they were mostly off this week because of New Year's. Um, but if you go to um, speak for yourself, there's a couple of the former uh, football players there who was trying to make. A pitch. I think it was Lavar Arrington who was trying to make a pitch for it, and I almost died of laughter because he basically was starting to talk about education. I'm like, okay, hold up, no, no NFL caliber quarterback player right now in most of these teams actually cares about their education. No one goes to Alabama for the education who plays football. 
I'm no, sure their the program is, is fine. I'm sure their program but, is fine. But even if even if you you know your thing is you you want to play football you want right but you want the education as well, well you know you're not going to get necessarily what you're going to get this year. I think there's more risk with going back. So play you know in the NFL, get drafted, get to a better team, and you know hopefully do well. And then if you want to go back to school when your career's done. You've got the time and the money to do it. You don't even have to wait until your career's done. You can take some courses along the way. You'll have with the money you're making during the off season. You can take a couple of courses, take a couple of long distance courses, a couple of online courses. I promise you, you will still get the same degree that everybody else gets. You're, it's just going to take you a little longer. That is allowed. Or just go to one of those online schools that will give you a degree for anything you want if you pay them enough money. If that's really your desire, yeah. The, the, point, the point is there's options. And most of those options involve you being in the NFL and getting some money. Basically, Kyler Murray turned down millions of dollars to make more millions of dollars. It's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's kind of the opposite. He already had a job, and he already had a signing bonus, and he already had money in the bank, but he converted into more money in the bank, so good for him. But this would be kind of the opposite. It would be turning down money for absolutely no reason just to – just to try to be a little greedy and try to see if you can bump up a little bit. But I think Trevor Lawrence is going to be a top quarterback prospect for next year, no matter what yeah, Tua does. There you go. So it's it's not a, the best idea in the world. But I just want to talk about that a little bit more because I didn't think there was as much to speak of on the college football final. Just because, just because I think it is a compelling matchup, but it's really hard to say what's going to happen because they stylistically should be a good uh, slugfest matchup at least offensively, between those two teams. No, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be good. For sure. And that'll be it for us this week. So hopefully you enjoyed episode 36 of the Unnecessary Nonsense podcast. We'll be back most likely sometime uh, later on in the week or in the, on the weekend. Uh, we're talking a couple about, regardless, it'll be either myself and Dave or just myself talking a little bit about some of the next matchups coming up now that we know what the matchups are. It'll be interesting to see kind of how the rest of this playoff plays out. As I said earlier, now that the Patriots are out of it, now it is wide open. We're going to have a new Super Bowl champion, no matter what happens. So that'll be interesting. And in the AFC, we're going to have a new Super Bowl representative. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. And then the NFC, it's now feels as wide open as it's ever been. There's obviously the favorites, but we're going to have to see how some of that plays out. And a lot of that will really depend on uh, how the rest of this week plays and also seeing who's in what position and who's going to be prepared for who. Either way, I'm kind of excited about it. Plus, you know, if if... You want excitement. You know, as I speak on this Sunday night, we're only 33 days away from week one of the XFL. So you can hold on with bated breath on that one. At some point, we will talk about that a little bit as well. Uh, there won't be any season preview because Lord knows what those teams are going to look like and Lord knows who's on them. Uh, we, we'll look it up a little bit here and there and try to figure it out, but it'll be interesting. I don't think we'll be able to bring quite the same energy we brought to the AAF, but... We'll try to have some fun with it because at least spring football is spring football. So you take what you can get. Thanks again. Happy 2020. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Necessary Nonsense Podcast.